Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. I'm having so much more fun now. I have let them show me how to live their way. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 246. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey, kids. Have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way-out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. Fifty-two pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail, made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to the slow poisoner at gmail.com that's the slow poisoner at gmail.com while supplies last you remember them from your childhood half for the friendly ghost richie rich hot stuff baby Huey, sad sack and little audrey you read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Bear Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. I plan to go on Charles F. Rosene's Magical History Tour in 2024. And here is Charles to talk about it. Hey, hey, this is Charles Rosene, sometime guest here on the Fun Ideas podcast. Have you ever thought of taking a Beatles tour to Liverpool? Well, I host and organize the Magical History Tour every summer, www.liverpooltours.com. But I'm here to tell you about two other things. My books. Yes, Mark isn't the only author. I've recently published the book of Top Ten Beatles Lists, where 64 celebrities gave their top ten favorite Beatles-themed lists with reasons why. And 
and all kind of fun stuff. Please check it out, www.bookoftop10beatleslists.com. It's the follow-up to www.bookoftop10horrorlists.com, where a hundred celebrities gave their favorite horror lists. Enjoy the upcoming show, and thank you for listening to my ad. In Fun Ideas Productions news, Not Just Happy Together, The Turtles from A to Z, AM Radio to Zappa, is now available from Genius Publishing. You can order directly from GeniusBookPublishing.com or from Amazon. Stars of Walt Disney Productions and Pac-Man, the first animated TV show based upon a video game, and the revised and updated Looking for the Good Times Monkeys book are all still available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through Bear Manor Media. Unconditionally Mad is still being formatted and should see publication in 2024. I'm currently working on an article about Mr. Weatherby and my TV animation book and another monkey's book and a book on Marvel's Crazy Magazine. More on these later. On today's show, we have a huge Beatles and Monkeys fan who has developed many projects related to both groups as well as performing in his own band. Here he is, Bill Last. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast, and today I have a friend of a friend. <laughs> um, Charles F. Rosne used to publish a fanzine, and he's uh, called Good Day Sunshine, and he's brought me a lot of different guests. Well, the guest we have today is uh, Mr. Bill Last, who helped Charles make audio cassette editions of various issues of Good Day Sunshine, which I uh devoured and ate up and i still have in my collection so i uh, want to talk a little bit about that want to talk about the beatles want to talk about monkeys want to talk about uh you know anything that comes up uh but here we are with mr bill last how are you sir hello there listeners glad to be a part of it so um i guess before i get into the good day sunshine tapes that's just one thing i wanted to ask you about uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in music and Beatles and monkeys and everything else you kind of like. All right, well, let's, let's cover the Beatles first. I was in elementary school when the Beatles hit. I was eight years old uh, when the Beatles did the Ed Sullivan show. and But I was aware of the Beatles in the build-up to the first show, because Beatles cards uh, with the bubblegum inside were already out there. Mm. There was a little uh, market I went to uh, across the street from my elementary school, and they had your usual run of baseball cards and football cards, and those didn't interest me, but I, I liked all the TV program-type cards. Yeah. And, uh, and then the Beatles. So I already had some Beatles cards prior to the ninth, and I also had a Beatles binder, the one with the famous I want to hold your hand, picture sleeve pose on the front with Paul holding the cigarette. Mm -hmm. And I was mercilessly attacked in school by girls who felt that the Beatles were only for girls. <laughs> and the boys didn't like me because I had a binder that only girls should be carrying. Mm. So I, I couldn't win either way, but I stuck it out. So that's the beginning of, of, of my fandom, the Beatles. Um, I was an original Beatles USA Limited fan club member. I've, I've been a uh, fan since January of 1964, mm -hmm. and I have followed them my whole life. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about a book I'm writing on the Beatles uh, at some point uh, in our discussion today. Okay. So as far as the monkeys go... Um, and I was actually, 
actually had, a, had the opportunity to tell this to Peter Tork. How important was it who, for kids that loved guitars to be able to know to tune in every Monday night at 7.30 and see a rock band playing guitars? Mm. You watched Ed Sullivan, and there was the rock act here and there, um, and I really wasn't all that much into the variety shows like Hullabaloo um, and Dick Clark's thing. So any place where you could see guitars being played by musicians every week was, was just great. Mm. And so I was a monkey fan from NBC Week in 1966, as <laughs> they used to call it. And uh, been, in, been there uh, forever. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting all four monkeys over the years. I was a, a photographer in their 1986 and 1987 reunion tours. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll go off track for just a second. When they were going to announce their reunion, there was a gathering at the Hard Rock Cafe on West 57th Street Field location in New York. Mm -hmm. So I was out in the front as uh, Davey arrived and Mickey arrived and Peter arrived, and we were all trying to figure out how we could get upstairs because that's where the press and the photographers were, and us peons, we were left downstairs. Well, I had to go to the bathroom, and after the bathroom, I come out, and who should I see on a phone but Mickey? <laughs> and he's talking possibly to a radio station, uh, doing some sort of short interview, and back then you had to feed your coins into the phone. <laughs> and so he's going through his pockets, trying to find extra change, and I held my hand out with some change, and he took it and continued the interview. <laughs> Uh, so I kind of had a run-in with him first. Uh, I've uh, been in the company of all three of them at various monkey conventions over the years. Um, working with Charles Rosnay, he would uh, send me out with Peter Tork uh, over the years and Pete Best to do different radio uh, shows, uh, both here in Connecticut and New York. Uh, so I got to hang with them, mm -hmm. and I have a unique distinct distinction in monkey's history here. I'll throw that in now. Okay. So get Peter in the car, and he realizes I'm a longtime fan, and we talked about everything, you know, guitars and the TV show and the songwriters that contributed and so on and so forth. And he was not aware that the line, never, more the, never mind the furthermore, the plea is self-defense, he had no idea where that was from. Huh. Well, it's from Oklahoma. Oh, okay. I think I have heard that, yeah. Yep, so they're in a, they're in a room with a table on it, and there's a judge that uh, they're, they're going to try this guy for supposedly killing another guy, and the judge slams the, the gavel. Never mind, the furthermore, the plea is self-defense. And that's where it was from, and I got to tell Peter that. Hmm. And he probably knew it, too, subconsciously. I'm sure he's seen... Subconsciously, right. <laughs> yeah. So right up there with Mr. Dabalina, Mr. Bob Dabalina. <laughs> well, it wasn't that one something on the uh, airport loudspeaker yeah, that, that or something? Yeah, was an airport thing. Yeah, yeah. And then there is also, there was, a, uh, I don't remember what movie this is from, uh, Clip, Clipper Calling Alameda. That, that's a line from a, from a movie, from a, uh, being spoken from a, a plane in a storm. Oh, okay. But uh, that's all I remember about that. So, yeah, I was pretty much a Beatles fan from the beginning, mm -hmm. and the Monkees from the beginning, and as I said, I 
It was nice to be able to meet all four monkeys. And uh, back then I was uh, a photographer, which I really don't do much anymore. But I have tons of pictures from them from the 86 and, and 87 tours. Uh, they played New York and Connecticut and Long Island. And, uh, you know, I saw each show, uh, each tour more than once. Cool. All right. Well, that wraps it up. No. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, actually, that opened up a bunch of questions. Um, so let's talk Beatles first, since that's okay. what you brought up first. Um, so you said you saw the gum cards. How, how did you hear about the Beatles first? Was it the news or a, a hearing I Want to Hold Your Hand? Or what was your first? I must have heard the song and that there were girls talking about the Beatles. Okay. I've... I've never been one to hang with the guys that talk about baseball or football or things like that. But if there's something music related, my ears would perk up. Yeah. So I don't remember exactly, but uh, I know I had Beatle cards in my hand prior to the first Sullivan show because in that first series, all the photos were taken in 63. A lot of them by Dezo Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, so the, the pictures were already out there, and they were starting to, uh, you know, enter the market because the "I Want to Hold Your Hand" single came out uh, at the end of December mm-hmm. in '63. So you know, the marketing uh, giant went into production, and they, these cards came out there. Yeah, I've bought a few of those over the years. I have, um, I actually bought some about, uh, I guess, about six months ago. Somebody had. I guess they had them stapled in a scrapbook or something. <laughs> and so uh, I got a whole bunch of the series really, really cheap in comparison because they had these little staple holes and everything. Right. It's like, I don't mind the staple holes. <laughs> Otherwise, the cards look pretty good. So, you know, I got them for pretty well, cheap. <laughs> as I get older here, I'm, I'm starting to uh, uh, liquidate some of my collection in little bits and pieces. Uh, there was a book that came out that showed the face of and the backs, for that matter, of every Beatles card there ever was. Yeah. So now having that as a reference tool, um, I sold all my complete American Beatles card collection. I even had a couple series that were bootleg series that followed along the numbers yeah. of the real series. I don't think I knew about those. Wow, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> were, uh, I think originally there was... Three black and white series, mm-hmm. two color series, and a Hard Day's Night sepia tone series. So that's six mm. series of cards. Wow. But in, as far as the black and white white ones go, there was a fourth series and there was a fifth series. They, there weren't very many cards in each of the series, if right. I remember. The other ones had would have like over sixty cards in a series. These maybe had twenty five or thirty, but they were marked on the back like the old Top Beatles cards, mm-hmm. and they looked legitimate as if they could have been the continuation of the fourth and fifth series. Hmm. Now, over the years, uh, I mean, you said you were teased. I guess over time, uh, things evened out, and both <laughs> men and women <laughs> enjoyed your Beatle collection, as it were, or that you were a collector or a fan. No, it was just that the fact that the Beatles were supposed to be girls, for yeah. girls, that's what the girls thought, and the boys also got thought. Yeah, the but, but I mean, when did that change, you know, where everybody's like, hey, he's cool, he likes all this stuff? Um, not very long after, it was only at the very beginning, I think, okay. I think by the time I hit fifth grade, uh, I was already taking uh, music weekly music lessons 
so I had learned to read music, and I was on my path to being a musician. Mm -hmm. um, but I think by the by fifth grade, there was there were other Beatles fans that loved them and had the albums in the cart. So I I fit right right in with at least some of my classmates. You know, okay. the, the non the non sports interested ones. Yeah. Because I, I always consider myself, I guess, a second generation. I don't know what generation means anyway. I just, well, because I was born on the day they were recording Strawberry Fields Forever. So it's like, uh, my earliest memories of the Beatles are always in the 70s. So, um, right. but... Uh, well, that, constitutes, that constitutes a second generation, Beth. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I always like okay. to say, well, at least I was alive when they were still together. <laughs> still, yeah. you know. I, I'm uh, in all the years since then, uh, obviously I've seen Paul and Ringo many times. Mm -hmm. I, I did see George on his '74 tour, and when he did the uh, Bob Dylan Bob Fest at Madison Square Garden in the early '90s, which was his last time of, of playing uh, in America, mm -hmm. uh, I, sadly I never I never got the opportunity to even see John. You know, we okay. we kind of took it for granted. Oh, he's in New York. Yeah, one of these days when we're in New York, we'll go up to the Dakota and see if we can see, <laughs> see him coming in or out. And, you know, that just didn't happen. Yeah, and you didn't even consider the Elton John concert, or was that a sellout and you couldn't get in? Yeah, uh, I, nobody really knew about that. That that was uh, that was a surprise. Um, uh, the first time I even remember seeing that, and remember the, the news didn't travel back then like it does now. I'm sure you remember Joe Pope and Strawberry Fields Forever magazine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Within a week of that Thanksgiving concert, Joe Pope had the current issue of Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, with a black and white photo of John on stage uh, with his Telecaster and taken from that concert. I think so. It was in maybe five to seven days that I was even realized that he did that. I was still a bit young in 74. Okay. Um, you know, as I said, I was only eight when they came there, but I, I was a hip eight-year-old, so I yeah. got in there right away, and uh, it's, it's taken a, a good part of my life being involved with their history and their archives and collecting and, and so on. So you, so you certainly didn't see the group together then in the 60s, right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> and my parents, even in 64, 5 or 6 for that matter, uh, they, they would not have taken me to a stadium full of screaming girls. <laughs> you know, and the, the sheer numbers that, you know, which is, you know, it's the sheer numbers of a baseball game, for that matter. Whether you're selling out Shea Stadium for the Mets or you're selling out Shea Stadium for the Beatles, it's still the same number of bodies. Mm -hmm. Somehow, going to a baseball game would definitely be more sedate and quiet rather than going to a Beatles concert. And even back then, teenagers didn't have the best of reputations. So yeah, that's all we needed. And this was pre-drug worries. I mean, nobody was. Nobody heard of drugs in 64 and 65. We didn't, we didn't really start to hear about drugs until, you know, marijuana in 66 and LSD in 66, 67. You know, before that, uh, you, you, you drank and you smoked. Right. <laughs> um, cigarettes, that is. You smoked cigarettes. That was it. You know, that, that was the big vice, uh, you know, and it somehow kids got, the, uh, got a bad rep. I remember that Joan Baez 
was coming to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is uh, the ma major city next to the town where I grew up in, and they were that all the newspaper reports were they had to have armed guards and policemen on horses, mm. and because she was going to come and sing about the Vietnam War, yeah. and there were going to be more, more protesters there, and it was going to be the violence was going to erupt. Uh, that's about the only concert I remember where people kind of looked at it funny. Uh, hmm. Not not really the Beatles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you said in your uh, description of yourself, are you from New York or Connecticut? Oh, well, I, I am born and raised and live in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, I am a retired public school music teacher. Okay. Uh, I am a musician that started on the accordion and then graduated <laughs> to guitar, bass guitar, piano. Um, I, in the late 70s and throughout the 80s, I was a singer-songwriter and have three albums, uh, two albums with my band and one album under my own name. Um, we kind of got rediscovered a number of years ago. Just, just re real quick, uh, uh, I, I started student teaching uh, in 1977, and I corralled several girls from the then high school choir to do some background vocals on some of my music that I had written. Mm. So we rehearsed, 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 we recorded it, and everybody had such such fun. They said, well, can't, do we have to stop it now? Do we have to break up just because the album is done? Mm -hmm. So we continued on, and uh, the name of the band was Twilight mm. Nuage. And Nuage is spelled N-U-A-G-E-S. <laughs> and for those wanting, wanting to know why the name, well, as we know, Twilight is the patch of day between uh, sundown and night, and nuage is a French term for between night and day. Mm. So we've got both ends of the spectrum covered. Got it. <laughs> and, uh, as I said, uh, over the years, uh, just my claim to fame is I almost had a song recorded by Barry Manilow. <laughs> uh, had I had that, that song recorded by him, um, I'm sure my life would be very different because it'd be included on every greatest hits compilation. <laughs> but the problem was, interesting, I took the song to a publisher and he said, great, perfect. Barry Manilow's going to love this. I'm going to take your song to the West Coast where Barry's recording. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fantastic. Sounds good. So then a couple of months go by and I don't hear anything and I go, uh-oh. So he finally sends my cassette tape back to me saying, Barry loved your song, but Barry wants a change of direction. Mm. <laughs> so he doesn't want to sound like Barry Manilow anymore. He wants to sound like somebody else. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay? And the next record he put out that could have been my song was a song called uh, Oh, Julie. Mm. Now... Do you remember that big Barry Manilow hit? No. <laughs> no just nobody does. It yeah. was Barry Manilow doing Rockabilly. What year was this, roughly? Late 70s. Oh, okay. So after Copacabana and all the big ones and everything? Yes, okay. yes. Um, and he never had, he never had a, another hit single uh, after Oh Julie. 
Okay. Um, so it's it's interesting. As I said my life would have been very different had Barry recorded it, had he not wanted to not be Barry Manilow anymore. But that's the way it goes. <laughs> it seems very odd. Uh, <laughs> did have a song that was licensed to uh, be in a movie. Yeah. Uh, which was called Queen of Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. I, I believe you can stream it, but it is not available on a physical tape or disc. Mm. And my song was used in there, and uh, when the movie was completed and edited and put together, they tried to show it at various film festivals um, to, to get an interest in a national release. Well, it never did have a national release, and as soon after they started doing that, the lead actor, uh, his name was Michael Parks, for those of you from the 60s and 70s, he was, uh, he was in that TV show, Here Comes Bronson? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Along Came Bronson, is it? Along Came Bronson? Yeah. Yeah. So, he makes this movie, and they're getting ready to show it, and he dies. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, now we don't have the lead actor to do any kind of promotion for it, so the movie never went anywhere, and that, that, that's my second strike in the music business. But uh, uh, it's nice that uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, this uh, kid was working at a Boston university, and he was in a used record store, and he came across the album Twilight Nuage. Now, Twilight Nuage was recorded in a basement, <laughs> and it was only meant to interest publishers in the song, not the band as a performing unit. <laughs> so, like a hundred or two hundred copies max were made, and I shipped those out to various publishers in the New York area, the Philadelphia area, the Washington, D.C. area, uh, let's see, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Connecticut, and Boston. Mm. And so uh, almost 200 albums were out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, this kid happened to find one that the DJ probably turned in or a publisher and bought it, and he loved it, and it became he became our guardian angel. And um, I started to look up things online about Twilight Nuage, and they're all talking about whatever became of this band. Uh, <laughs> they were just applauding the record. But that album got good reviews in America, England, Germany, and Australia. Wow. <laughs> and I knew absolutely nothing about this until the hell of it one day when this kid was interested in Twilight Nuage. He really spread the word for us. Hmm. And so we, we got back together after what, 30 years, uh, and actually had a rebirth a few years ago. And then I finally cobbled together the third album, which if everybody hadn't gone their separate ways, would have been a Twilight Nuage album, but instead I put it out under Bill Lasta. The end of this advertisement will be, if you are interested in either Twilight Nuage or Twilight Nuage, the second album is called What If? Mm-hmm. And the third album is Bill Last, and it's and the album is called La La Music. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to it on Spotify. You can buy it on uh, iTunes, and I 
tell me it's out there in a bunch of other platforms, but those are the, really the only ones that uh, I deal with, Spotify and, and uh, iTunes. Okay. So that's it. That's the end of my okay. songwriting career commercial here. Well, I also have a question about it. Um, what, is, what does the music sound like for someone like me who has never heard it before? Okay. I try to write three-minute pop songs that have verses, choruses, bridges, some nice guitar or keyboard solos, and I try to make them as commercially pop as possible and not ashamed of it. Okay. Okay. So, uh... I mean, there are songs that could have been for Barry Manilow. There are songs that could have been for the Monkees if they were still actively together and, and seeking output from, uh, from outside writers. You know, Barry Manilow was, was really the golden goose of that era mm-hmm. because even though he did write a lot of his own music, they weren't the hits. Yeah. The hits were written by outside songwriters. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, he, he like, I, I always remember reading The Monkees were considered the golden goose mm-hmm. in 1966 because to get a song on a Monkees album, you know that record was going to sell millions of copies. Right. Isn't that kind of ironic? I just wanted to say this as an aside, you know, it's like probably one of Barry Manilow's biggest hits was I Write the Songs and he didn't write it. Right. <laughs> And then one of uh, a similar situation, Harry Nielsen was a songwriter, but his biggest hit was exactly. not written by Harry Nielsen, you know. Yes, well, and, and Harry's two uh, uh, had the songs of the years were uh, neither one were written by him. That's, that's, that's the way the music business goes. Interesting. <laughs> um, so um, I know, well, let me just do this. Uh, so how did you meet up with Charles F. Rosney? Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation Well, I, uh, Twilight Nuage had started, so this was 77. Mm-hmm. And that same year, Charles was putting on his first Beatles convention. Mm. And it was a, uh, it was a low-key affair. And uh, Charles was a communications major at Southern at Southern State University here in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a local record store uh, called Cutler's, and I met him in there one time because the guy that was in the forty fives department, his name was Larry. He was always telling me, "Oh, you got to meet this guy, Charles. You know, mm-hmm. he's planning on doing a Beatles convention." Well, one day we were both there at the same time on a Saturday afternoon, mm-hmm. and Charles invited me to his convention. And uh, when it was held in a motel, not a hotel, a motel, so it wasn't <laughs> very wasn't very large. It was basically a room for the band, and and a room for the dealers. Mm-hmm. That was that was it. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember anybody showing films or videos. <laughs> back then, although that mm-hmm. that was to change uh, shortly. Uh, so, but there was like nobody there selling stuff for a Beatles collector. Hmm. So Charles said, can you go home and get some stuff that you want to sell? So I did, and went there and, and then sold stuff, and Charles and I have been together ever since. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, I, did, I used to do the audio issues for his Good Day Sunshine. I believe there were five or six of those. Right. And Charles and I have just been good friends. Uh, he's, he's a brother from another mother. Yes. 
So, um, how did those come about? That's where I first heard your name, you know, and it's funny, the, uh, the other week when I was asking Charles for some new podcast guests, he says, oh, I can get you a bill last, uh, and he was about to explain who you were, he goes, oh, the guy that does the cassette tapes, <laughs> he goes, you know him? And I go, well, I'm not stupid, <laughs> your, your name and voice are on those cassettes, so it's like, yeah, I remember your name, so, uh, how did those come about? <laughs> But in addition to doing those, I also wrote a column called The Last Word on Collecting. That's right. That's right. So actually, those were up and running first, and the audio cassette was a mixture of Last Word on Collecting in, in audio form, uh, as well as the, the Christmas, uh, end-of-the-year Christmas cassette. Mm -hmm. So as I said, Charles and I have just been friends. Uh, I would distribute the magazine to several uh, points of interest that, that sold fanzines at that time, and... Oh, just uh, just continue. Then Charles and I have been to see Paul and Ringo many times over the years, as well as the Monkees mm -hmm. uh, group and solo and different kind of permutations there. So yeah, he's a dear, dear friend, and um, I'm glad I got into his world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've we've been rocking and rolling ever since. That's cool. Um, on those cassettes, though, I mean. Was there ever a worry at that time of, you know, copyright infringement or anything? I mean, because sometimes you put things that were, you know, yeah. really unreleased well, and unique at the time, but, I mean, some of it has come out legit since, but... Yeah, I would think the readership was small enough for, not, for them not to worry if anybody okay. in the publishing world even heard these. Uh, you know, at some point, you know, Joe Pope did the same thing. Yeah. He put out Christmas editions on the uh, floppy disk, the flexi disks, mm -hmm. uh, and there were other fan clubs doing uh, audio editions as well. Well, no, and you know, I just provided a service and put it together. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not saying I own it, yeah. and I, I certainly didn't make any money off of them. Right. And I did them as a favor to Charles. You know, if they want to come after me for a percentage of nothing, well, they, they certainly can. <laughs> Um, did you help Charles with that one, I think Charles did one vinyl bootleg, which I ironically own. Uh, did you help him with that one, or is that a separate project? Uh, I pretty much, you're talking about snaps and tracks. Yes, yes, I couldn't think yeah. of the name. I knew it was something and something, and I couldn't think of it, so I'm glad you remember yeah. the name. <laughs> I, I basically put the whole thing together, the uh, graphics, the cover design, the recording, uh, yeah, that that's really my baby. The only thing that Charles contributed is turning the capital label into a Geritol. Label. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and I'm going to have to dig that album out because I've talked to Charles about it. He was astonished, and I had no clue that he had any involvement with it. I just picked it up in San Francisco at a record shop. It's long oh, gone. I made it all the way out there. Right? Yeah. Because, you, know, you know, back then, you could get away with saying... Produced for the fan club, not for sale. Yeah, and I remember that, but I didn't realize Charles worked on it. And he goes, "You got that, you know?" And I go, "Yeah." Um. <laughs> he came up with Geritol. Everything else is my baby. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's funny that other bootleggers picked up on the Geritol label and put out product of their own using the Geritol logo. Yeah, yeah, I remember saying that. Either Charles or I had nothing to do with. <laughs> but um, there used to be a record shop called, 
uh, I should know it because it, it, I can't remember the name of it, but it was around for years in San Francisco until probably the late 90s. And they would get like every bootleg under the sun. I mean, that's where I got Sessions and all the big famous ones, File Under and all that a stuff. Good, a lot of stuff, good stuff came out of the West Coast. Yeah. And uh, every so every often... So Every so often they'd get raided, so you'd go in the shop and there'd be yeah. nothing, you know. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, I, the first time that this happened, I was like, "Oh no, they don't sell them anymore." But short, shortly, but surely, over time, they came back, and then I got used to it. So it'd be like once every three or four years, the bootlegs would go away, and then they'd slowly come back. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember any real busts in uh, yeah. in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot more, more things. I always heard in the history of bootlegs that a lot of bootlegs would premiere and get initially sold at uh, drive-in flea markets on a Sunday. Yeah. So um, we had that there. And I, I will fess up that I was... Uh, somewhat responsible for if uh, an earlier bootleg that has nothing to do with Charles. It was called Scraps. Hmm, I've heard of it, but I never bought that one. It has a black and white cover, and at that time, I, I put it together, the audio part of it. A friend of mine designed the cover. It wasn't a printed cover. Instead, it was a black satin cover with a white paper wraparound. Hmm. And um, there were 200 copies of that. I think it, the full title was Scraps, a Unique Collection. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the goal was to put 10 or 12 recordings, uh, some from the uh, Let It Be movie, that had not appeared on bootleg before. Mm -hmm. that, that was the goal for that. And at the time, those recordings had not been on any other bootleg. So right. you know, since then, they've been on a zillion bootlegs. Right, but, right. You know, it, all part of collecting uh, yeah. you know you, you go after the Beatles at Shea Stadium and you won't be happy until you see the perfect one and along the way you've got 27 versions of Shea Stadium that after a while you just, you just can't watch it anymore right right <laughs> so I assume uh, you got all your recordings just by trading or whatever at all these conventions and things way back when I was involved with uh, Joe Pope uh, and a lot of the collectors that kind of surrounded him. Uh, being close to New York, there were trips to New York to different stores to pick up albums. Um, there was a husband-wife team out in San Francisco. They ran a fanzine for a very short time called Old Brown Shoe. I remember I, that, yeah. I get their names, but they used to put out a lot of bootlegs or, or 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 either that if they didn't manufacture and put them out they were a major distributor mm -hmm. almost every month there were three or four titles that you could buy from them and it was nice because this is when bootlegs got away from the white covers and the paper inserts right now covers were all you know beautiful and some were laminated and they, they looked like real products so yeah i remember buying a lot of stuff from them out, out in the san francisco at the time yeah and that's what i remember is you know and the, but i actually had a, my share of the paper cover ones too because oh, yeah. like you you know there was always that elusive track that was only on one of those type of albums and oh, it's like well you know so what what was your first beetle bootleg do you remember 
I think uh, it's. I think it was. It might have been file under Beatles. It might have been something else. Um, oh, I go back further. I go back further. No, I mean I have ones now that go back further, but I mean that I bought brand new. Because right. um, I never even a, considered that bootlegs. Was a deal at the time too. That that album, file under. Yeah. Um, well, it, my story is, you know, I'll say the brief story is I became, I knew of the Beatles, but I really became a fan about 77, but I, I was busy collecting the regular albums and the solo albums and everything else right. to not even really mess with bootlegs. I mean, I knew of unreleased tracks. They would talk about, I, uh, how do you do it? And a few others that just hadn't been released and you go, Oh, I wish they'd release that, you know? <laughs> um, and there is a record store that still exists in San Jose, California, called Streetlight Records. And they used to deal occasionally with bootlegs. But I think the first bootleg I got was through the mails, because I got on a few subscription lists where um, I think the first album I remember hearing about was called The Black Album. I never bought that one, but... Uh, I remember that. Yeah, it was a three-record set, and it had its own um, a poster... Designed a la the real White Album poster, and it was basically material that uh, was taken from the double uh, sets of Sweet Apple tracks. Yeah, there were there were four. There were there was Sweet Apple tracks one and Sweet Apple tracks two, and they both were two record sets. But some of those sides were very very short. Yeah. So with a little pruning, you could put uh, four albums into two. Yeah. And that—that's what the black or into three. Sorry, yeah. the three records that they, they could—they could eliminate an album, make it look nice, and that—that's what was on the black album. Yeah. And I think I didn't get that one because it was a little pricey. You know, yeah. I, and also I don't know if the material attracted me. What I was looking for is just totally unique songs. Yep. That that were complete, and eventually sessions fit the bill. You know that was kind of like what I was looking for: is a single album that had all the complete songs that had never seen other versions. I mean, they had a couple alternates, but I wasn't big on uh, demos or alternate takes or you know whatever. You know, even to this day, I'm not that big on it. You know, like when Anthology finally came out, I was more into the totally unique tracks, you know, than, you know, take one of Ticket to Ride or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, so that's just my preference. Oh, yeah, my, my first bootleg, well, I, there was actually three bootlegs that came out uh, with, probably within hours of each other. Mm -hmm. And that was Comeback, K-U-M, and that just had a uh, plain white cover uh, with the words come back, uh, hand stamped on it. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one was called the Silver Album, and it had no graphics or inserts at the time. It was just in a silver cover. Huh. Uh, and these were also Get Back, Let It Be outtakes. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was the one from the West Coast on Lemon Records, which was kind of trying to put together the unreleased Get Back album. Mm. Those were the first three that basically came out simultaneously. Mm. Uh, the white and the silver ones I picked up because they were out there. It wasn't until some research and years later 
But I found out the Lemon Records one also came out at about the same time. Mm. Uh, and then people started, you know, going back and looking for anything Beatles to put out. Right. And I remember also getting, like, goofy albums, like, you know, when the Ringo special came out in 78, somebody had pressed up that special onto an Ogner Rats yeah. album cover that looked very good, like the prop, yeah. you know, and I was very impressed, and so I had to buy that one. Yeah. yeah, so. Yeah, you know, now, uh, after all these years, I used to have quite a vast vinyl bootleg collection, but yeah. so much of it uh, is now out. Uh, probably, as far as group stuff goes, as far as the Beatles as a group, I would say probably 99% that was ever on vinyl has been in the now introduced to the digital realm on CDs somewhere, yeah. somehow. Yeah, uh, I still I do still keep some Beatles bootleg vinyl, but it's the solo stuff that a lot of it hasn't uh, transferred over yeah. into the digital realm. So to kind of get a good overview of their four solo careers, you, you got to have several uh, bootleg vinyl albums in your collection. Yeah, which I do, and I still have a few group ones. I think one of the reasons I hang on to the one you and Charles did because I was going to hang on to it anyway is you guys have a sense of humor. <laughs> And I always appreciate that. I mean, even if the music is available elsewhere, which I don't even remember if it all was or all is nowadays, you know, you put a sense of humor into it. You're saying the Geritol thing. So, you know, it's like that type of stuff, you know. And so just for that, the cover graphics are worth keeping that album. So that's why I do. Well, I believe the first disc, Charles and I were both on it. Yeah. And we actually sat on my bedroom floor in, in my parents' house that I lived in at the time uh, and recorded it on the floor of my bedroom. <laughs> After that, Charles pretty much let me have free reign, so I was the only one doing it. But I don't remember if it was that first one or the second one. Yeah. I had just five days before had all four of my wisdom Oops. teeth pulled. <laughs> and I, I thought I sounded like mumbles. I guess <laughs> no one else would ever pick up on it. But I'm telling you, and I can't remember again if it's the one with Charles or maybe the one after it. But I remember I was in a lot of discomfort putting that one together. <laughs> I'll have to listen to them again. I mean, I just have them stored in the closet. I don't even listen to cassettes. I should probably transfer them over to digital just so I have them. You know, I just haven't done it yet. But anyway, let's move on to the monkeys. Um, so you're a first-generation fan there. I assume you watched it from episode one. Episode uh, one. And uh, did you see the monkeys... In concert back in the day, 66 no. to 70? Oh, okay. No, again, being, you know, I was born in 55, so that I was now 11, 12, 13, 14, yeah. uh, when the monkeys uh, had their heyday. And, uh, and again, same, same deal as the Beatles. They were not going to take me to a uh, concert with thousands and thousands of other fans. <laughs> Uh, it, it's just the way it is. Right. Of course, like most teenagers, your life opens up when you get your license. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then there was no holding me back. Yeah. Um, so did you see at least Dolan's Jones' voice and heart back in the 70s? Uh, no. No? Wow. 
And again, I don't, I don't know if they played Connecticut or not. Yeah. But you know, the first Monkees concert I saw was the '86 reunion. Okay. Uh, at a theater here in Connecticut that was in the round. So mm-hmm. you got to see them. You know, you got a seat, and, and the, the stage spins slowly around. And I had a press pass that allowed me to shoot the first two songs. Mm. So I remember that first day, they did an afternoon and an evening show, and I got to shoot the opening songs for both. I I know they opened with Last Train to Clarksville. I I couldn't tell you what the second song was. (laughs) And uh, then Charles co-produced some Monkey's Convention with others, so I was able to photograph the three of them there, uh, one being in uh, Philadelphia uh, again in 86, I believe, that, that first year. So, uh, and I got to, uh, I got to hang with, uh, with the three of them uh, backstage. Uh, I was lucky that they accepted me uh, because I never picked up my camera to shoot them when they were off stage. Mm. <laughs> they, they were there with, you know, wives or kids and that, that, that wasn't my place to photograph that. Right. Which is fair you enough. Know, when, I'm, when I'm out and they're performing for us, well, that, that's fair game. Yeah. I oh. even submitted a lot of my pictures from the 86 and 87 tours to David Fishoff Productions, hoping that uh, I could get a picture or two in one of the concert programs, but that, that did not come to pass. Oh, well. Um. I thought some of my pictures were as good, if not better, he modestly said. <laughs> now, as a first-generation fan, did you continue on and buy all their albums all through 70 with yeah. changes and everything? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember uh, I became friends with this kid for a while in high school. Uh, he was he was the one that had brought changes to my attention. Mm. And I wasn't surprised that it was only Davey and Mickey because Prior to the album, they had the single Oh My My Out. Yeah. And uh, I actually believe uh, belonged to what was left of the Monkees fan club at that time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they sent the members a postcard. And on the front side was were two black and white individual pictures of Davey and Mickey. And on the other side, it said, Davey and Mickey would like to bring to your attention the Monkees' latest single. So right then, I thought, uh-oh. Mike's not there anymore. <laughs> and so when uh, when uh, Davy and Mickey carried on, uh, you know, I kind of knew it from from the single. And uh, do you know where the front cover of Changes was taken? Well, it's a concert photo that has Michael in it. I forget which. Uh, yes, it's actually it was well. Not really a concert. It or, was from the Merv Griffin show. Okay, yeah. I meant to say a TV appearance, but yeah, a live appearance, I should say. That's what original, I meant to say. Yeah, original cover has all three of them and the Sam and the Midnighters behind them, and they just put, took Mickey and Davey out out for the uh, for the album cover. So now, now buying this album, we were going to hear the Monkees only playing tambourines and maracas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how far they were going to get with that lineup. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised, but maybe that was part of the release agreement. It's never been made clear to me 
that they didn't just keep throwing Nesmith songs on the album anyway, even if he wasn't an, an active member of the group, because weren't they just sitting in the vaults anyway, <laughs> and they could have made full group albums still? Uh, uh, not nowadays, but, you know, Mike was very well represented. He kind of he, he, he really helped put together the Monkees Present and Instant Replay, which I think are both great albums. Mm-hmm. And I like changes. It's, it's, they weren't what they were, but mm-hmm. uh, it's fine. I, there, there's nothing to be uh, ashamed about that album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the album that gets the shortest drift in their nine-album original run is The Birds, The Bees, The Monkees. Uh, I love that album, actually. (laughs) Other than, you know, it was obviously first on Cold Gems, and then in the uh, 80s and 90s it went to Rhino, and then it went to uh, a couple of other companies. uh, I forget one of them here. But in any case, there haven't been a a new pressing of Birds, the Bees, the Monkeys in, like, forever. Uh, Nobody uh, has it out on colored vinyl or, or any of that. It seems to be the album that is least represented. I think most of their albums, if not all of the original nine, are out of print right now, unless you buy the box set from Lino that contains all nine Lino albums or all nine CDs with a, with a tenth uh, disc being uh, some of the singles and the alternate mixes uh, for a little bit of a rarity. Right. But I don't think you can actually go out and buy... Uh, uh, Birds, the Bees, and the Monkeys on a CD or even vinyl unless you get them in those boxes. Yeah. I think the last Monkeys item I've seen is uh, on those record store days, they did the, um, what's it called? I can't, I'm saying, I'm going to say Monkey Flips, but that's not what it's called. Uh, Missing Links. The Missing Link series, thank you. Yeah, it was yep. the, the three... Uh, they put two of them on vinyl for the first time, and then the first yep. one reissued. And then yep. uh, the first Monkeys album came out in a double vinyl set yep. in recent times, and I think that's it. You know, yeah, no, it, it, it never ends. They're, they're yeah. always be reissuing it. The uh, uh, you know, but they are represented out there. If you really want to find anything, it's it's not that much of a stretch. They're they're original complete television series and movie and television special on Blu-ray is out there if you yeah. really want it. Yeah. And most of the deluxe box sets that uh, Andrew Sandoval put together are still in print. Uh, right now, the only ones missing are uh, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. Uh, I'm sure he will get to that sooner or later. Yeah. And I really don't think there's enough outside material to, to merit a box set for changes, so I'm not not holding my breath on that one. But as all the other albums are represented by box sets from the Monkees right. to present, uh, with Pisces being the only one conspicuous by its absence. Yeah, my thought is this, and I have nothing to base it on other than this is the way things go. They're probably waiting till 2026, 2027 to start a whole cycle over again. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but uh, I, I had I'd see, I'd seen uh, Henry Diltz in New York. Mm-hmm. He was doing a co-presentation with Patty Harrison, Patty Boyd. Yeah. And, you know, they're both photographers, so there were slides presented on a screen, and then Patty would talk about her photography, and Henry would talk about his photography. And I happened to catch, uh, my bathrooms are a lucky place, I happened to catch Henry Diltz coming out of the bathroom, 
Mm-hmm. And this was prior to 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see if I can get my Beckett right. Yeah, 2016 was the 50th anniversary. Right. I got my decades right. You did. Yes. And so we had heard that Henry was working on a book with uh, an, another gentleman and it was going to feature his photography and they were shooting to get it out that year because then the monkeys were going to have a media profile and being their anniversary and everything book never came out i don't know what happened to it everybody's getting older what are they holding on to this stuff for yeah i don't know either but i will say this and this might be related to it um that same year or shortly after actually i think it was in 2018 2018 um uh, Dolans and Nesmith appeared at the Egyptian Theater in L.A. and for the head 50th anniversary, and and I went yeah. down there, and Diltz was in the audience, and so was a bunch of other people. Sandoval interviewed them, and uh, Diltz had a lot of his photographs uh, put together as a short film to show before Head. It was like a five-minute film or something of just various photos with a monkey's music background. And I don't know if those are the same photos you're referring to that would have been in a book. Well, but you know, he, he was, he was one. He probably has probably more pictures than anybody on the monkeys, yeah. with the exception of the photographer that worked for Tiger Beat magazine and Monkey Spectacular magazine. <laughs> I, I want to say his name is Bob Carver. I, I could <laughs> be off on that. But I would say between this guy and Henry Diltz, the monkeys were covered more by them than probably any other photographer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, going back to Charles and I and my podcast, Charles and I interviewed Henry and one of them. And yeah. uh, if you don't know, you should know, but if you don't, we're, we've are we been working on a Turtles book, and Diltz did a number of photo sessions for them, too. Very cool, yes. So uh, we got permission from Henry. Henry sent us a whole slew of photos, I mean, tons, and I had to go through all of them. I mean, there's thousands of them, and I went through them, and I found like what I considered the perfect picture for the front. I narrowed it down to like 10, and then we narrowed it down to like four, and then, you know, we got the top two, and one became the front cover, and one became the back cover, and that's what we got. So, but, okay. uh, you know, and, you know, of course... I was, uh, I, was a, I liked the Turtles. I, I bought a number of their singles over the years. I don't remember uh, ever buying any of their albums when they originally came out, but a friend of mine turned me on to a double vinyl Turtle collection mm-hmm. and back then you were transferring your records to cassette tapes so that transfer that tape of that particular album was uh was the really the amount of turtles that i listened to i i think i wore that tape out and then when they started mm-hmm. to have best ofs and greatest hits on rhino that's that's when i continued to invest more in those mm-hmm. but yeah I, enjoy, I enjoyed the turtles uh and uh, they do have a peripheral connection to the monkeys. Yes, <laughs> uh, with Chip Douglas among others. Yes. Um, uh, what happened there on that is that uh, Charles and I became friends a few years ago, and it's kind of funny. It just kind of happened on a podcast. We were both on, 
And uh, then we just became fast friends, even though I knew who he was back in the 80s. You know, I just never talked to him or anything like that. And he knew of my monkeys books, but uh, he says, is there any other group uh, that you like as much as the Beatles or the monkeys that you'd want to do a book on? You know, and I said, well, I always liked the turtles. And then that's what started that. You know, we mentioned yeah. a couple other groups which might become future book projects, but, you know, for now, yeah, Turtles is the one, you know, that we're doing, well, you know. So. While you're out there on the West Coast, I'd love to see a book on Emmett Rhodes. Oh, yeah. I don't know much about him other than, you know, he put out a couple albums and he passed away a few years ago, but, you know, yeah. other than that, and he so, sounds, uh, I don't know if he uh, sounds so much like Paul like they say, but he has very good music. I will say that. Yeah, I mean, this uh, considering his uh, his his second album actually, he did the album for the Merry Go Round, and then he put out an album on A and M that was uh, had members of the Wrecking Crew uh, and session musicians on it. But then his third foray into uh, recording is he recorded it all in his garage and he played all the instruments himself. Yeah. And it's hard not to compare. Uh, someone that plays all the instruments, a la Stevie Wonder, a la Paul McCartney, right. uh, a la Todd Rundgren. <laughs> uh, this guy, this guy had chops as a drummer. Yeah. I mean, his, he was originally a drummer before he switched over to guitar and, and songwriting. Mm -hmm. So he has that where Stevie Wonder would do synthesized drums and Paul's a very basic drummer. Uh, Emmett Rhodes really shine, really shown. I thought in in, in that realm. I, I love all his CDs, mm -hmm. but especially the Merry Go Round. His first album called Emmett. Oh, no, his first album was called American Dream mm -hmm. on A and M, and then his first album on ABC Dunhill was just Emmett Rhodes. Yeah. Now the music industry just gobbled him up and spit him out. Yeah, that's always that, so weird. Long, long story short, for him. You know, he gets signed to ABC, he puts out this first album, even had radio play on a single called Fresh as a Daisy. Mm -hmm. But you know, they always say you have your whole life to make your first album. But then your mm -hmm. second album, you have from the time you're finished with the first album to the second album. Right. So he just could not deliver an album in time playing all the instruments. And the more behind he got, the more ABC Dunhill came down on him, yeah. and finally, literally, he, he was broke. They they just forced him out of the business, yeah. and I'm sure ABC Dunhill just wrote it off as a loss. But but very very sad. Uh, and and do uh, and just to stick it to him one more time <laughs> is you may be familiar with the song. Um, she's a very lovely woman. Uh, you're a very lovely woman. And that actually got recorded by Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. It was on a single. It has never been on any of her albums. And it's never been included on any greatest hits, best of compilation. I mean, if, if it was a single, yeah. if she would have included that, this this guy could have at least put some bread and butter on his table. Right. You know, and, and it's just, again, a, every song that Linda Ronstadt's ever recorded is in the digital realm. The only way you can find it is if you go to YouTube 
and uh, they put a, a still photo of Linda, and they play the recording underneath. And you can lift the audio off of that, a few, a few record pops and all. And it's just escaped nowhere in the world. Has that song ever been on a Linda Ronstadt uh, record, CD, tape, etc.? Too bad. Very sad. Hmm. That's really weird. But it, it's kind of interesting how the record industry has changed because, you know, comparison to, you know, what you're saying about Emmett Rhodes, you know, someone like, let's just say Adele, you know, you know, yeah. She doesn't put out an album every six months like they used to, or every year, or, you know, sometimes it takes four or five years. You know, I, I've kind of joked around, it's like, I'm waiting for her next album called 70, you know, because she puts her age on the cover, you know, and it's like, some people get the joke, some people don't, but it's like, you know, it's like she takes her time and she's allowed to, you know, it's like, it's just weird that they didn't in the past, you know, you could say Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys with Smile, as an example. It's, uh, you know, music is more disposable now than it ever was. And the trouble is, and most, unless you're at the top of the echelon there, artists don't make money putting out music. They, they make their money performing it live. Yeah. Uh, and that really only puts the dollars in their pockets. Uh, because so much music is streamed, yeah. you know, uh, sometimes I'm zipping through the Grammy Awards and 99% of the people, I have no idea who they're talking about, yeah. and other than some of the presenters are people from past generations, uh, past decades, and I'll recognize them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not what it was, but I guess every generation has their own arguments yeah. and or complaints yeah. about music that preceded their generation now as a friend of mine is fond of saying every dog has its day yeah i mean i don't mind the current music but it's like man it's kind of hard to follow somebody uh you know know, when they don't put out music that frequently if you have to see them in concert that's kind of a drag because tickets aren't cheap they're not five six seven bucks like in the old days you know ridiculous um (laughs) You know, I uh, I listen to CDs in my car, and if I'm not listening to CDs that I, pro- you know, that that I purchased or programmed myself, then I'm listening to news. So I really don't listen to a lot of new music. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, in my home, um, 99% of the time I'm playing vinyl, and it's mm-hmm. again records I bought that I want to listen to that mm-hmm. I enjoy. So I, I'm I'm quite happy. Uh, my my uh, my psyche is is overflowing with music that I love, and I'm really not looking for anything else. Right. Now, in saying that, I mean, like, if Ringo or Paul put out a new album or EP, uh, like Ringo does, do you keep up with that now, or do you just oh, yeah. don't bother? Oh, I have you know, I have complete collections uh, okay. of of everything. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I should like to mention my final plug is. Pr- For the last five years or so, I have been working on a book that Mm -hmm. will be tentatively titled The Complete Beatles Videography. And there will be five sections, Beatles, John Paul, George, Ringo, and I trace all of their various video footage from the beginning of their solo careers to now, uh, the cutout, the cutoff date is going to be February 9th of this year. Mm. Uh, we're we're talking it's a 60 year timeline for five different acts. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And as I said, I've been working on this for five years. Uh, some sections are done. I only have to update them. But now with the uh, new stuff on the Beatles and the Red and the Blue and Now and Then, mm-hmm. those will be good endings to the Beatles section. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as uh, Paul, John, George, Ringo, you know, if they put out anything between now and February 9th, I will include it. But that will be my cutoff. Mm-hmm. I hope to tie everything together and have it ready to present. Uh, I, I'm going to arbitrarily say June 1st. <laughs> and Charles said he is going to help me. I think we'll, we'll end up self-publishing it mm. or going through Amazon this way. I don't have to make a financial investment and have boxes of books in my basement. Right. And with Amazon, you know, they're made to order. Right. And I just want to share with people my collection. That's, if anything, that's my specialty. But I have very, very complete collections on the Beatles and the Monkees, every every which way. Very cool. Um, is there a similar book from you uh, on the Monkees, too, or, you know, eventually? Or would that not be in the cards? <laughs> um, well, I tell you. There's this book, and I'm going to my shelf now. This person did a really good job, and I don't think I can top it. It is called Good Clean Fun, the audio and visual documents of the monkeys, 1956 to 1970. Mm -hmm. It's by a gentleman named Scott Parker. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it starts with a circus boy in 1956 and ends with changes in uh, 1970. Mm-hmm. And he really, if you do not have this book, it's right next to your book on, on my reference shelf there. It is. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it has everything you wanted to know, audio and video-wise. Mm-hmm. Right. So, no, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I just want to enjoy my collection uh, there's not as much to go after anymore. It also gets very expensive. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I just want whatever time I have left, I just want to enjoy what I've loved collecting, yeah. enjoyed what I've purchased. Um, the adventures of acquiring this stuff were always great. You know, some, sometimes the, uh, the payoff is in the actual search rather than the acquisition. Right. <laughs> uh, and I've met wonderful friends over the years, uh, Charles right at the top of that list, that we would not have been friends or even known each other had it not be for the Beatles or Monkeys. Right. So, and I have, uh, I have a dozen or so people. We date back to the, the, the uh, Boston conventions uh, that Joe Pope put on in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go back to the first Beatle Fest in 1974. In New York, uh, Joe actually beat Beetlefest by a few months, they, but they were both in the summer of uh, 74, I believe. Uh, Joe Pope's was in July, and uh, Beetlefest premiered that September. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, and, uh, people that I met there are, are still in my circle of friends today. Mm-hmm. Are you planning to attend any conventions or making any personal appearances in the next few months? Oh, well, I, I, I don't perform with my group anymore. Okay. Twilight was sadly uh, ill health has slowed down a, a couple of members to to the point where they they can no longer uh, 
play music comfortably. Mm. Uh, so I really don't do that. I, I guess when the book is ready to go, I will be... Uh, Charles says he has plenty of interviews and presentations he could line up for me. Okay. So I'm just going to sit, sit back and enjoy the fact that I, I wrote the book, I compiled it, put it together, and now I'd like to share it with other people and meet some new friends along the way. Okay. Well, when the book is finalized, you're saying roughly June. I'm not holding you to it. but uh... I'd like to at least have it ready to, to give to someone that, and say, here it is. Okay. Um, well, in any case, even if it was later than that, I'd love to have you back on the show so you can plug it again. I would love to. I'm going to keep your number uh, on my file here, and I'm glad I got a chance to talk with you. And like I said, I I respect uh, your monkey's book, uh, and I I do not give praise uh, a lot because there's just a ton of reference books out, out there. And uh, as soon as I start to see mistake after mistake after mistake, I I, I lose interest in it. I I always use this line here. I'm I'm sure you know, being a Beatles fan, that John Lennon was really not born when the Nazis were bombing <laughs> Liverpool. Okay. Right. So any book that starts off, well, John Lennon was born on October 9th, 1940, in Liverpool, whatever, hospital. Well, the Nazis were bombing. I just closed the book, <laughs> put it back on the shelf. That's where it's going to stay. Yeah. Not going to even purchase it, because if they can't even get that basic fact right, you know, because right. Uh, let's face it, a lot of books, there's not very many books left that you could write about the Beatles. Most of the people that were involved with them have either written their book or are no longer with us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't need someone from years afterwards. You know, I, I want to read things by the people who were there at the time. I have a, I have a collect, I have a saying in collecting things. I prefer to collect things of their time. Right. You know, I don't want to hear about a 1984 reissue of this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, nowadays they're just, they're going absolutely crazy with this AI, artificial intelligence. <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty soon they're going to dissect every note the Beatles ever recorded. Yeah. And they're going to put out an album of 14 songs of only Paul's bass parts. Right, right. <laughs> That's it. That's all you're going to get. Yep. And another, another album will be just Ringo's work on his hi-hats. Yes. <laughs> That's all. You know, so, like, when when will this stop? <laughs> you want Ringo's drum solos? Here they are. <laughs> not, not, even, not, not even a whole solo. We'll only get a piece of the drum kit. Right. Because they can now, <laughs> they can now isolate it. And yeah. So, so, someone just offered me... Uh, revolver with each track individually represented. So you have, you know, it starts off with uh, Taxman. So you get Taxman bass guitar, Taxman rhythm guitar, Taxman hi-hat, Tom Tax, Taxman keyboard. Enough. Yeah, Yeah, I'm with with you. I mean, you know, even though I'm younger, it's like I'm pretty much done with collecting unless, you know. But if you told me there's an outtake, from 1968 that no one has ever heard before and it's yeah. you know then then you got my attention a carnival of light or something yes <laughs> yeah, then, 
it got my attention. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, it's just, well, you know, the bootleggers, we have to thank them in some in some way. Uh, the best stuff bootleggers put out will always remain uh, in our hearts in a, in a fond way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, everything now is so fast on the Internet. I mean, right. with, with the same day that Now and Then made its audio premiere, there were already versions on YouTube of the same song, but with the section of lyrics that, that, that Paul and Ringo decided not to use, the middle section. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, within, within minutes yeah. of Now and Then being premiered, you could, all, you could already get the alternate complete version. Yes. Well, the one I, that boggled my mind is somebody had taken it and made it like if it came out in 1964 and i said wow <laughs> you know yeah. and it's like yeah. it never ends you know so you know <laughs> yeah i mean i i now they're gonna they're gonna go to i mean one thing i'd like to see them go to uh, and i heard from somebody that peter jackson was gonna work on this is go back to the star club tapes yeah and really, that that could be very interesting. Yes, I'll agree. You know, but then somebody else offered me uh, the Decca audition tape, the umpteenth version of it. That <laughs> of course you've never heard anything like this before. Yes, I have. I want to hear it the way it sounded in 1960, uh, 1960, because uh, what was it? 60, 1962. Because that was of its time. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, you know, but I don't. I don't I don't need to hear anybody deconstructing them uh, yeah. ad infantum. Oh, well. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> on that note, we'll give you one final plug for your book. And uh, uh, if, if somebody wants to contact you, do you have a website? Or are you just on Facebook? How, how do you... No, you know, I, I only go on Facebook to keep up with my granddaughters, but I but people can get a hold of me if they want to talk Beatles, monkeys, are interested in my book, um, are looking for certain pieces of video uh, that I will make for them. Uh, it helps. Whatever money I make goes right back into the, uh, acquiring other things from my collection. <laughs> but I'm at Bill Last eight. And, uh, I'll say that again. Bill Last at att dot net. So you need all three L's in there, B-I-L-L-L, at A-T-T dot net. Love to hear from uh, any of your listeners, and please identify yourselves as having listened to this podcast, and I look forward to going back and forth with you. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Bill, uh, for being a special guest today on Fun Ideas Podcast. And this is Mark Arnold speaking, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Bill Lass, for being my special guest. Episode number 247 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2024. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Good night.